Good to have our visitors with us and old friends as well. And uh, let us turn our attention as we continue in our worship of God to the preaching of His Word. If you would turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 3, and we'll focus this morning on verses 1 through 8. John chapter 3, as we continue in our exposition through this Gospel. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 8, let us give our hearts and minds to pay attention as we hear the Word of God. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to Him, Rabbi, we know that You are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that You do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Amen. Let us unite our hearts and seek God's help in a time of prayer. If you would, let us bow together and pray. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, we pray that you would break open for us the bread of life, your word. We pray that we would be instructed in both the sobering and the glorious reality of the new birth and being born from above, a work of your sovereign grace accomplished by your spirit. Father, we pray for your people that we would have hearts that are astounded as we think about how deep your grace runs in our lives. Father, as we are reminded that there was not a single bone in our body that sought after the Lord, that we were lovers of darkness and happy in our sin until You, in Your good timing, according to Your good pleasure, made us alive when we were dead. Father, cause us to rejoice. Cause our hearts to leap with joy as we think upon the realities that You could have justly left us in that state and we would have reaped the just condemnation for our sins and our rejection of Christ, but instead, according to Your great mercy, You have caused us to be born again through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for any who are here who are unbelieving and who stand outside the kingdom of God and have not entered in and have not seen it by the eyes of faith. We pray that they would be struck by their own inability to convert themselves. That this passage of Your Word would 
shut them up to the grace of God alone, that it would remove any any carnal hopes of changing themselves, of changing their morals in order to enter the kingdom, but they would look to the Lord for their salvation. Father, be with us. Draw near to us for Your glory. Salvation is of the Lord, and salvation is unto the glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we pray that we would be reminded of our very low place, not only as creatures, but as sinful creatures. And that You do according to Your good pleasure in heaven and on earth. That there is none who can stay Your hand. And we praise You that Your hand has been a hand of kindness and mercy towards us. We pray that You'd be with us in the exposition of Your Word. Pray that You would instruct our minds. That Your Spirit would enlighten our minds. That He would also create within us greater and new affections that would affect our wills and our determination to live by the Spirit who now dwells within us, that we would live for Your kingdom and the glory of Your name. We pray that You would be honored and revered in our worship. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'd like to take our usual uh, pattern that we've been working through the Gospel of John in and open up these eight verses under three movements. Number one, we will start with the exposition of the text. How does it instruct us? What does it teach us? Secondly, we will move to doctrine that is deduced from the text. And then thirdly, we will close with application. The application of the text. So, if you would, if you don't already, please open your Bibles to John chapter 3 as we will work our way uh, through these uh, first eight verses of the chapter. Let's turn to our exposition. In verse 1, it begins... There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Okay, so right at the beginning, Paul, uh, excuse me, John gives us our character introduction. We have his name, we have his station in life, and his approach to Jesus. His name is obviously Nicodemus. His station is he is a ruler of the Jews. Now what that means is that almost without doubt, Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin, Israel's ruling body. And that means this is a man who has a lot at stake. And so he comes to Jesus by night. Which indicates that Nicodemus had hesitations about being seen publicly conversing with the Lord Jesus. And so he's curious... And he wants further understanding, but he knows that his fellow rulers already don't like this Jesus. And so he visits him under the cloak of darkness. Now, however, in addition to that, John including the detail that he came by night is probably also meant to emphasize the theme of spiritual blindness. We'll see as we go through the Gospel, often in John's Gospel, he contrasts light with darkness and day with night. And Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night stands as a representative of the Jewish establishment being in spiritual darkness. And as we'll see in our text here, this teacher of Israel, which is what he was, does not have a single spiritual light bulb turned on. He is blind to spiritual truth. He is in the darkness. And it's very fascinating 
that Nicodemus is going to make two more appearances in the Gospel of John, and every time John mentions his name, he also includes the detail that this is the man who came to Jesus by night. And it's as though with each subsequent appearance in this Gospel, we see Nicodemus coming out of the darkness and into the light as he becomes a convert and a follower of the Lord Jesus. And so verse 2 He came to Jesus by night and He said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, remember I mentioned last week, right at the end of our exposition, the end of chapter 2. Remember there was no chapter breaks when people first read this Gospel. Right at the end of chapter 2, John was telling us that many people saw Jesus' signs that He was doing in Jerusalem and they believed in Him. But then John says that Jesus didn't believe in them. That it was the kind of faith that Jesus refused to entrust Himself to. It was a counterfeit faith, not true saving faith. And here we have an example of that. Nicodemus is at one level convinced that Jesus is a teacher come from God because he's seen his signs and he can't deny the signs, but he's not yet born again. And at this point, for Nicodemus, Jesus is a teacher, but Nicodemus has not yet experienced that work of the Spirit that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, when he says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so verse 3 through 4, Jesus answered him and said, now notice Jesus cuts straight to the chase here. He knows the state of Nicodemus' heart. He knows what is in man. Chapter 2 said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Now, this is the first spiritual instruction we have from the lips of Jesus in this gospel. And he prefaces with that phrase, truly, truly, I say to you, or most assuredly, I say to you, which, <coughs> excuse me, which emphasizes the importance and the universal truth of the axiom that he is about to lay down. And notice, He does not begin with what man must or can do to enter the kingdom of God. He begins with what God must do in the soul of a man to enable him to see the kingdom of God. Okay, mark that very clearly. Jesus' doctrine of salvation begins with the necessity of God's work, not the necessity of man's work. It's very important that we, we understand what's going on here. While there are dozens upon dozens of texts in the New Testament in which sinners are commanded to respond to the Gospel by believing, and they are responsible. And by the way, brothers and sisters, we should not hesitate to command sinners to believe the Gospel. But that is not what Jesus says here. What Jesus says here is not a command. He doesn't say, Nicodemus, be born again. He simply states a fact. You must be born again if you are going to see the kingdom. 
And what Jesus is doing here is He's saying to the teacher of Israel that Nicodemus, there is something God must first do in you to even make you willing to believe. According to Jesus, salvation does not hinge ultimately on man's supposed free will. Okay, It's true. Man does act upon choice. And he will be held accountable for that choice. But his will is bound to choose evil because his nature is evil. And therefore, the decisive reason anyone enters the kingdom of God is the sovereign act of the Spirit of God renewing his nature. We'll see this a lot in John's Gospel. This is why Jesus will say to the crowds in chapter 6 who saw His signs, but they're just interested in more food for their bellies, He says to the crowds, no one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. Because as Jesus is about to say, that which is born of the flesh is merely flesh. It's corrupt. It's blind to spiritual truth. Bound in sin. And as He will say in chapter 6, Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. That's why when Peter in the other Gospels makes the great confession that Jesus is the Son of the living God, Jesus is very quick to point out that Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but My Father who is in heaven. Don't miss the irony of Nicodemus' response here. The Greek word here that's translated in our translation again, as in you must be born again, can legitimately be translated either as again or as from above. Okay, It's just one of those words that depending on the context can have two very different meanings. And the reason our translators have translated it as again instead of from above is because that's how Nicodemus understands Jesus' words. Right? So he hears Jesus say this and his response is, What do you mean? Can a man crawl back into his mother's womb and be born again a second time? But here's the thing. We shouldn't take our translational cues from a man in a passage where his spiritual blindness is being highlighted. Because here's, here's the point. Nicodemus' somewhat humorous response, it is a bit funny when you think about where his mind goes, his somewhat humorous interpretation proves Jesus' point and illustrates why he so desperately needs the new birth. Because without the new birth, he can't comprehend spiritual realities. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. Neither can he understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This just happened in chapter 2. You remember Jesus says, destroy this temple. And He's talking about the temple of His body. They think He's talking about the physical building. And so again, Jesus is talking here about the necessity of being born from above, born from heaven, and yet Nicodemus is thinking that He's talking about crawling back into His mother's womb. He's blind. He doesn't understand. And so in verse 5, Jesus here, Nicodemus basically having made his point for him, Jesus just says it again. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
I mean, it's, it's almost as if Jesus is just kind of like, I don't know how much clearer I can say it to you, and so I'm just going to repeat myself. Uh, but he, he does add the details that this is a birth. He helps Nicodemus out a bit. That this is a birth of what he calls being born of water and the Spirit. And there have been several, throughout the history of the church, several suggestions, suggestions on how we should understand that phrase, being born of water and the Spirit. Why didn't Jesus just say you need to be born of the Spirit? Now, I'll give you three, three views. Um, one view that we should reject is that Jesus is referring here to the waters of baptism and that He's teaching a form of baptismal regeneration. Okay, that, that, that's the idea that the waters of baptism are what give the Spirit. Now, let me give you three reasons why we should reject that interpretation. Number one, For Jesus to refer, if he is referring to baptism here, for Jesus to refer to water baptism in such a vague way at this early point in his ministry, it would have been almost incomprehensible to Nicodemus. Secondly, if the new birth comes from the waters of baptism, it doesn't really make sense for Jesus to emphasize the sovereign freedom of the Spirit blowing where he wills, as he will in just a few verses. Right? I mean, if the Spirit is tied and bound to the waters of baptism, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to say that He blows where He wishes. But the third reason that we should reject that is because the New Testament records for us many people who believe and receive the Spirit of God before they are baptized. For instance, Acts 10. Okay, so that's one view that we should reject. But there's a second view, namely that Jesus is saying that you need to be born not only physically, but you also need to be born spiritually to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, so this view sees two births being spoken of. And according to this view, when Jesus says that one must be born of water, He's making reference to natural birth, right? With the amniotic fluid and so on. And that Jesus is saying, that's the first birth, but you also need the second birth, the birth of the Holy Spirit. Now, one thing that view does have in its favor is that Jesus' very next words are, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And so they would point to that, and they would say that Jesus is contrasting physical birth with spiritual rebirth. And let me just say that, say this, that view is possible, and I, I certainly wouldn't fall out with anyone who, who took that view, but there is a third option that I take and I prefer, namely that being born of water and the Spirit are two ways of describing the same spiritual rebirth. Okay, so I don't think he's talking about two, ba- two, two births, but one birth, namely the new birth. And the reason I think that's most plausible is because remember who he's talking to. He's talking to a teacher of Israel and he says to Nicodemus in verse 10, do you not know these things? Now, stop and think about it for a moment. If you're talking to a teacher of Israel, where would he be expected to have learned about these things? The Old Testament, right? And what do we find in passages that promise the regenerating work of the Spirit like Ezekiel 20, uh, 36, verse 25 and 26? God through Ezekiel says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you 
and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take out the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Being born of water is a picture of the Spirit cleansing the heart. The Spirit in the new birth takes out the polluted heart of stone that is dead in spiritual darkness and puts in its place a clean new heart, a heart that is made of flesh, meaning that it's a heart alive to God. It's not a dead stony heart. And that's what happens in the new birth. It's divine heart surgery. And without that work, the sinner will remain in darkness. And so Jesus says in verse verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus is making it extremely plain to Nicodemus. And extremely plain for us. There are two categories, biblically speaking. There is no in-between. There are no other categories. Every person in this room and every person on this planet is either definitively still of the flesh by your natural birth and your connection to Adam, or by the grace of God, you have been made definitively spiritual by the grace of God and the work of the Spirit of God. To be of the flesh is to be of our father Adam. Ruined by the fall. Void of spiritual life. Our our minds and our understanding and our inclinations have been darkened and have been inclined to sin ever since. As Wesley ironically put it, Wesley was not not a Calvinist by any means, and yet he wrote one one of the best Calvinistic lines in And Can It Be?, He wrote, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. The dungeon, I woke and the dungeon flamed with light. That's what it is to be born of the Spirit. God from heaven, by the Spirit of God, sends a quickening ray life-giving ray and awakens us from sin's sleep. Physical pedigree does nothing to accomplish the new birth. It doesn't matter if you have Christian parents, Christian grandparents. You must be born again. Moral reform does not equal the new birth. Sinners can change habits. That is not what the new birth is. The new birth is a new principle of divine life implanted into the soul of man. John 6.63, I already said it, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. And finally, in verse 8, Jesus emphasizes the sovereign nature of the new birth by the illustration of the Spirit that He gives. Verse 8, He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, several things are highlighted here by this illustration, and I'm I'm just going to mention three. Number one, like the wind is sovereign and free, the Spirit is sovereign and free in giving spiritual life. Okay? 
Go outside and try to tell the wind where to go. You will try in vain. And even more vain would it be to try to dictate to the omnipotent Spirit of God where and how He works. He, like the wind, blows where He wills. And so, what that tells us is the new birth does not depend on man's action. It cannot be manipulated or coerced. It doesn't happen after or because of something you do to initiate the process. It depends upon God's freedom to have mercy upon whom He will have mercy. Matthew Henry said, the Spirit does not attend our order, nor is He subject to our command. The Spirit dispenses His influences when and where and on whom and in what measure and degree He pleases. Secondly, the Spirit works powerfully. There is a power to the force of the wind. The wind does not come to us and ask us for our permission for it to blow upon us. And so it is with the Spirit. The Spirit is life-giving and where He blows, He blows with power. He doesn't ask our permission. He gives life to whom He pleases and those to whom He gives life are made alive. The third thing from this illustration. Like the wind, the Spirit's works are hidden, but His effects are manifest. His works are hidden, but His effects are manifest. Jesus says you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes, but you hear the sound of it. There is a mysteriousness about the work of the Spirit. And sometimes it surprises us in the most incredible ways. God and God alone knows His purpose, and we see His purpose by the effects that it produces. After all, who has seen the wind? You've never seen the wind. You've simply seen what the wind does. And so in the new birth, we see the work of the Spirit in the fruit that He produces. Chiefly and foremost in giving the gift of faith and repentance to sinners. And seeing their lives transformed. And seeing those who were once lovers of darkness being made new and walking in the light of truth and holiness. This is the new birth that Nicodemus and every sinner needs to experience, Jesus says. Now let us turn our attention to our doctrine and doctrine deduced from our passage. I went a bit longer in our exposition this morning, so I'm going to give you two doctrines instead of three this morning. And both of them are directly related to the new birth. Or regeneration is another word that we use for the new birth. Number one, first doctrine. The new birth is absolutely necessary to be saved. The new birth is absolutely necessary to be saved. Notice Jesus' clear, unambiguous language. Verse 3, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or verse 7, do not marvel that I say to you, you must, literally, it is necessary for you to be born again. And what is incredible is that Jesus does not hesitate to declare this truth to one who is presently outside the kingdom. 
I'm pretty sure many today would have a problem with Jesus' evangelistic method. I mean, what happened to God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? I mean, certainly, Jesus, you don't want to make people feel helpless. You want to make them feel empowered, right? Wrong. And apparently, Jesus didn't feel that it was a hindrance to a sinner coming to Christ by making them aware of their own inability. And we need, we need to understand this. I already alluded to this, but I want to be very clear. While sinners are told to repent and believe the Gospel, and that is God's demand of them, sinners also need to know that salvation is a work of God's sovereign grace from first to last. What Jesus is doing here is He's demolishing Nicodemus' presumption and He's making him aware of his own inability to enter the kingdom on his own. And you know, I think it's high time that Gospel preachers recover the idea that God is God and we enter His kingdom on His terms. Too long have sinners been made to feel like they're the ones in the driver's seat. When we do that, we give the impression of a weak and needy God and that Jesus is somehow surprised and disappointed at human unbelief when in fact God is the one in the driver's seat and it's actually a privilege to be a member of His kingdom and He grants entrance to whom He wills. And that shouldn't discourage the sinner from seeking to enter the kingdom, but what it does is it shuts up the sinner to the grace of God alone. It tears down any carnal security in my own human ability. Uh, It tears down people thinking that moral reform is enough to be a Christian and to enter the kingdom. And it tells them you don't just need a little bit of reform, you need a new birth. And it causes the sinner to look to God and God alone. This doctrine of the necessity of the new birth both makes the sinner aware of his uh, his helplessness and secondly, it brings glory to God. Have Have we forgotten that God's chief aim in the redemption of sinners is His own glory? So that every sinner who has ever been saved by Christ, even though he or she may not have been aware of it at the moment, after they have passed into the kingdom through faith in Christ, they turn around and they realize that was because of God's work in me. We, we sung that line in, in How Sweet and Awful is the Place. "'Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin." That's talking about the new birth. God's sovereign grace giving us faith. Spurgeon described the sinner coming into the kingdom and and he described it as passing through that gate. And he said that the sinner approaches the gate of the kingdom of heaven and as he passes through, he reads above the gate on a plaque, whosoever will may come. And after he has passed through that gate onto the other side, he turns around and on the other side of the gate, there's another plaque that says, chosen from before the foundation of the world. The new birth is absolutely necessary to enter the kingdom of God. That brings us to our second point of doctrine. 
The new birth is solely the work of God. The new birth is solely the work of God. And this is related to the last point. Obviously, it's hard to talk about these things without overlapping the points. But here, Christian, I want you to feel the gracious nature of this gift called the new birth. Okay, There are many aspects of the Christian life in which we are consciously involved. Right? For instance, in our sanctification, Philippians 2, Paul commands us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling as God works within us. Right? We are active in that. In the new birth, we are entirely passive. It is not something that we do. It is something that is done to us. And Jesus emphasizes that by two things here. Number one, the passive voice of the verb. And two, the very illustration of being born. Okay, the passive voice of the verb. If I say I hit the ball, that's active voice, right? I'm doing the hitting. If I say I am hit by the ball, that's passive voice. I am being hit. Jesus here does not say to Nicodemus, you must birth yourself. He says, you must be born again. Now, what does that presuppose? It presupposes that someone else is doing the birthing. Namely, God. But secondly, Jesus makes this this evident by the analogy of birth itself. Christian, you need to understand you are no, no more responsible for your spiritual rebirth than you are responsible for your own conception and physical birth. You had no say regarding being brought into this world. And likewise, you had no say in the event of God making you alive. There was nothing that you did to prepare yourself for it. There was nothing that you did that made God feel obliged to dispense it upon you. God the Holy Spirit simply came in His good timing according to the purpose of election and He made you alive when you were dead. Like Jesus calling out to Lazarus in the tomb, Lazarus, come forth. And He came forth. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Ephesians 2 when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we were following actively the prince of the power of the air. God made us alive. And brothers and sisters, aren't you thankful that God does not seek our permission? Because if He sought our permission and required our permission, no one would be saved because by nature we prefer darkness over light. And often, God works in mysterious ways in the new birth. I was talking to someone recently about C.S. Lewis's conversion, and Lewis tells the story of his conversion of how he got on a bus to go to a zoo one morning, and he got on the bus an unbeliever, unconvinced of Christianity, and he says, I wasn't even in, in very deep thought on the bus ride about anything in particular. And he just says that when he arrived at the zoo, he knew and believed that Jesus is the Son of God. How do you explain that? The new birth is how you explain that. Doing heart surgery on you when you weren't even looking for it. 
taking out sovereignly the heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh that is alive and affectionate towards the very things of God that you once hated. One of the most vivid memories I have as a, I have as a young Christian, I don't like to use myself as sermon illustrations, but this is something that was so, is so deeply impressed in my memory that I very much doubt I will ever forget. And there's someone in this room who would remember it. One of the most vivid memories I have as a very, very young Christian is bawling my eyes out uncontrollably. And they were tears of joy when this doctrine hit home in my heart. I can remember where I was sitting, what room I was in, because it struck me. I could see myself in my mind's eye, pre-conversion Kyle, the former me, and I could see my former self. And what I saw so clearly for the first time is that pre-conversion Kyle was not seeking God in the least. I was happy and content in my sin. I was a lover of darkness. I didn't want out of my sin. I wasn't seeking a solution and refuge from my sin. And as I sat there weeping, I realized I was happily and willfully running my race towards destruction. And if it had been left up to me, I would be in hell. And I would have no one to blame but myself. And to realize the true significance of Paul's words, but God, being rich in mercy, when we were dead, made us alive. That's your story if you're a Christian. That that is the only thing that explains why you are a Christian and others are not. It wasn't your intelligence. It wasn't your natural dispositions. You were flesh just as they were our flesh. You were Nicodemus at one point. And yet God, in His discriminating grace, caused you to differ. And if you struggle with the thought that that's not fair, that God would do this for me, but not for everyone equally. And trust me, I know, we've all been there. But let me remind you that you don't want fair. You want grace. Hell is fair. God never sending Christ into the world to save a single sinner is fair. What you got was grace. And so instead of criticizing God for His discriminating grace, perhaps maybe instead we should thank God for His mercy. That brings us to our application as we close this morning. Our application. And I want to speak first to the unbeliever and secondly to the believer. First of all, let me address you if you're here and you're not a Christian and you don't know Christ. I want to be very, very clear because it's when dealing with these issues of God's sovereignty and how, they, how that relates to man's responsibility, it's at times like these that can be most liable to misunderstanding. And so I want to be abundantly clear. I cannot give you the spiritual birth. Neither can you cause yourself to come to spiritual life. That is something only God can do and you cannot force His hand to do it. That is why this doctrine should make us feel vulnerable vulnerable before God and realize that we are at His mercy. And yet, 
that doesn't mean that I have nothing to say to you. Okay, it doesn't mean that you have no responsibility. Listen very carefully to me. God's sovereign freedom in the new birth does not nullify your responsibility to seek with all your might the Lord and to heed the command to believe the Gospel. And if you're sitting here, even if that doesn't make sense, and in your mind you're thinking, well, if God has to do it, it doesn't seem to make any sense why why I should seek after it. Even if you don't know how those things fit together biblically, listen to me. Seek Christ. Look to Christ. Trust Christ. Because the Spirit's work of the new birth is seen in our believing. As Jesus has said, we don't know the Spirit's work apart from its effects. And so we ought not to just wait passively for some hidden evidence of the new birth, but rather you should go straight away to the task of believing upon Christ. The proof of the new birth is your believing in Christ. And having believed, you can be confident it was because the Spirit of God made you alive. Deuteronomy, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us. And what is revealed is the duty to believe in Christ. And so sinner, come to Christ and trust Christ. Don't linger. Believer. Application to the believer. I have three, three things that I briefly just want, want to apply. Uh, three ways that I want to apply this in. Number one, Christian, give thanks to God for the new birth. The Apostle Peter did the very beginning of his epistle, 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Believer, I pray that afresh this morning, the gracious act of the new birth would land upon you. Christian, don't forget where you came from. It is so easy, the long, especially the longer you've been a Christian, it is so easy to let the things that once brought us to tears, tears of joy, to just become common as time passes. But believer, remember that though there are different shades of darkness, and some of you are the out-and-out sinner, and some of you are the self-righteous, you know, goody-two-shoes Pharisee. And by the way, I'm not saying that one was worse than the other. It's just a different shade of darkness. But remember, Christian, you were darkness. Regardless of what form it took. And it can be easy for us to forget what it was like that day when the scales fell from our eyes and it seemed like the whole world had been renewed. When you realize, I am awake and I'm alive. I'm alive to God spiritually. And all of my aims and desires in life have changed. And Christ has become my all. Christian, give thanks to God for the radical change of the new birth. You wouldn't be where you are without it. Secondly, Christians, seek to entertain the Holy Spirit and improve your graces. Seek to entertain the Holy Spirit and improve your graces. That's an old Puritan term that they would speak of the Christian walking and communing with the Spirit is entertaining the Spirit. 
The Spirit making us alive in the new birth is the starting point of our spiritual life, but it wasn't the end. It's not like the Spirit just comes in a moment and kind of touches His people, makes them alive, and then goes somewhere else. He makes them alive, and through faith in Christ, He indwells their hearts. The gift of the Spirit is not stagnant. He he is the living breath of God. The life of God in the soul of a man. And He has taken up residence in your heart if you're a Christian. And like Jesus will describe Him later on in the Gospel of John, the Spirit is like a fountain welling up within us. A gushing fountain pouring forth continually grace upon grace. And so, Christian, your duty and responsibility Walk in the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. Richard Sibbs said, there is nothing in the world so great and so sweet a friend that will do us so much good as the Spirit if we give Him entertainment. Having given to us the new birth, the Spirit then nourishes His begotten children into mature adults strengthening them by the Word, giving to them His graces, enlightening their minds to the glories of Christ, and strengthening their resolve to live before the Spirit's all-seeing eye. Thirdly, take comfort that your regeneration can never be lost. Take comfort that your regeneration can never be lost. Notice the, the order in Jesus' words, the flesh can become spiritual by the new birth, but that which has been made spiritual by the Spirit of God never becomes again and completely, definitively flesh. God is not a God who goes back on His Word. The Spirit is the seal of our redemption and the down payment, the earnest Paul says, of our final glorification. God does not give His Spirit simply to take Him back. He comes to make permanent residence in the hearts of His people. Unlike Saul in the Old Testament, from which God withdrew His Holy Spirit, God does not withdraw His Spirit from any who truly know Him. But as John says in his epistles, the Spirit abides with us. And so Christian, take fresh courage in your Christian pilgrimage. He who began a good work in you will see you all the way to heaven. The sovereign, omnipotent Spirit is your guide. He is your comforter. And He is your helper. And He cannot fail. So let us rejoice, brothers and sisters, in the new birth and walk in response in a way that is fitting for the children of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that our hearts would rejoice as they did at first. We pray, Lord, to the degree that we have lost our first love and that our affections for our triune God and the grace that has been shown to us, we pray that to the degree that our affections have waned, Father, that You would increase them. Bring our memories back to the early days when our chains fell off. Return our thoughts 
to those feelings of freedom when we realize we had been freed from the chains of hell and the punishment of Your wrath, that Christ was a sure Savior that cannot fail. Father, we thank You for the new birth. Holy Spirit, we bless You and praise You for causing us to be born again. Our Father, we pray that You would write these truths on the hearts of Your people. We pray for any who are strangers to Your grace. Draw them with power. We thank You for the knowledge and the belief that no one can stay Your hand. That the most obstinate and unwilling sinner can be brought into the kingdom by Your Spirit's power. And we pray that He would do it for Your glory. Father, be with us this afternoon as we enjoy a time of fellowship, as we eat together, and as we gather again this afternoon. We pray, Lord, that You would be with Thaddeus, our brother, as he comes to teach in the afternoon. We pray that You would give us attentive hearts and minds. pray that You give us energy to focus and to benefit from both services on the Lord's Day. We pray that Your name would be exalted. Be with us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.